0: So thank you for coming today. I know this looks like math, and I know it looks really (laughs) scary, but it's really about music. I promise you. So on the royal portal of the Gothic cathedral at Chartres, France, there's a depiction of Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, holding the child Jesus on her lap. And she's surrounded by a representation of the seven liberal arts. The trivium of grammar, logic, and rhetoric and the quadrivium of arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. Music is represented by a woman surrounded by a carillon of bells, a viol, a psaltery, and a monochord. She simultaneously represents secular learning and the harmonic order of creation, and she evokes music as a purely intellectual science. Below her sits Pythagoras, who founded the science of music at his desk. Schart's musical imagery suggests to the viewer that playing, hearing, and studying music are privileged means to see and know the creative mind of God. As the Book of Wisdom says, you have arranged all things by measure and number and weight. I grew up surrounded by music. My parents had always had it playing in the house, and at a very early age, I started music lessons. In high school, band was my life, and I majored in music when I went to college. I played music, wrote music, talked about music, and listened to music for hours. I was drawn to music of many different kinds and often moved to tears by it. But I never fully appreciated or understood how beautiful music truly was until I began the study of its physics and rudiments, its processes and general principles, history, practices, and possibilities that we call music theory. It was then that I realized my deep attraction to music was no mere emotional feeling, but a response to the beauty and order of creation and to the creator who must be much more beautiful. It was there that I found another way of knowing God through the beautiful language that he created, the language of music. For what is the point of beauty in the world, not just to be looked at, but to be looked along to God? Now I'm fortunate enough to teach music theory in AP Music Theory at Crest. And today I'd like to share with you why this subject to me, which is almost a kind of alchemy, is my favorite. People sometimes think of composers as coming up with all of their music from within, but being a composer and writing music is really more like being a creative cook. Creativity comes into it, but there are processes and recipes that we follow, and if you don't follow them, the chances are your music is not gonna work. So what I'm gonna show you Uh, We're going to be looking at something I like to call somewhat inaccurately the Philosopher's Stone of Music Theory, (laughs) the Overtone Series. I was in high school the first time I learned about the Overtone Series, and I've been fascinated with it ever since. This, as American composer Leonard Bernstein put it, built-in preordained universal phenomenon is the key to so many different aspects of music. So I'd like to show you some of my favorite aspects. I actually had to cut this talk way down, but I'm gonna show you my very favorite ones. So we're gonna start with a single note. When you strike a key on the piano, or pluck a string on the harp, or blow a column of air through the flute, The resulting vibrations create waves that travel through the air to the ear, which we perceive as sound. Because instruments, acoustic instruments, are built to produce vibrations that are regular and repeating, we perceive them as musical tone. If the vibrations are irregular and unstable, like if I just hit the case of this piano, you perceive it as noise. Lots of instruments are built with a combination of pure harmonics and irregular harmonics. And the more irregular harmonics you have, the more the sound of the instrument cuts through. So flutes and harps and the human voice generally have very pure overtones, and we perceive them as sweet and soft. And things like brass instruments with their thin metal and cymbals with the flexible, brittle metal with all those ridges, throw off thousands of irregular overtones, and that's why one cymbal player can cut through a whole orchestra playing at top volume. Just so many overtones coming out at once. If I uh, said, that, excuse me, the Greek philosopher Pythagoras pioneered many musical discover- discoveries during his lifetime using a monochord, an ancient musical and scientific instrument consisting of a single string stretched over a sound box. By stopping the string at different intervals, he found he could make comparisons between different notes. When you pluck the string, it vibrates across its entire length, giving a fundamental note, the note that you hear. So when you pluck the string, it vibrates over its entire length. But what you hear is not all you hear. The string is producing this fundamental pitch, is not only vibrating across its entire length, but across divisions of its length at the same time. So a pitched acoustic instrument produces not only a ratio of 1 to 1, but of 2 to 1, and of 3 to 1, and of 4 to 1, and so on. If the fundamental, the tone you hear, is middle C, the next harmonic, or first overtone, is an octave away from this C. And the one after that, one, a 3 to 1, is a 5th. And then you get a 4th. And you see that our overtones are getting smaller as we go. First we have an octave, and then a 5th, and then a 4th, and then a 3rd. We have a 3rd, and then a minor 3rd. And if I play those all together, we get the sound of pure harmony. So everything that resonates with pure overtones has this core sound. The intervals ring out so true because the simplicity of their ratios mean they not only resonate with the fundamental, but with each other. So they enhance all the other sounds as we we go up. The first observation we can draw from this is the distinction between the major mode and the minor mode. Think back to when you were in elementary school in a general music class or taking piano lessons, and your teacher was introducing you to the sound of the major and the minor mode, she might have said something like, major is happy, and minor sounds sad. And you probably agreed with her, and I did, too. Um, But most of the history of Western music, people haven't had this association with happy and sad for major and minor. There are many medieval and Renaissance examples of lively dance tunes in the minor mode, and many tragic folk ballads in major keys. One of the saddest and most poignant madrigals I know is the Silver Swan by by Elizabethan composer Orlando Gibbons, uh, which, although it contains a minor chord here and there, is firmly grounded in the major mode and ends with an authentic major cadence. How are we to explain, then, the difference between major and minor? Because there's certainly a much different mood produced by this minor chord than produced by a major chord. I would like to propose to you that instead of happy and sad, I think the difference between major and minor is settled and unsettled. Major is settled, resolved, things as they are, with our major third. (coughs) And because it's the triad of pure harmony, while minor is unsettled, unresolved, disordered, or what composer Paul Hindemith called clouded, because its third is not the major third of perfect harmony, but a half step lower. This accounts for the compositional practice of what we called the Picardy Third. We all know the Picardy Third, even if you've never heard that term. And that's what a lot of teaching music theory theory turns out to be, by the way, giving names to things students have already heard and loved their whole life. (laughs) So the Picardy Third, you all know, a hymn or a song or a piece of chamber music will be going along nicely in minor for almost its entire length. And then at the very end, suddenly, a major chord. So we have this lovely minor And the piece is over. The composer raises the darker unsettled minor third to the brighter settled major third, and the sun breaks through the clouds. My composition teacher in college used to call this the deathbed confession. <laughs> the girls always like that. joke. <laughs> What's interesting is you almost never run across a piece of music that's predominantly in the major mode and ends in the minor mode, if we do the same thing reversed. <coughs> doesn't sound right at all. I've been looking for pieces that do that for years and you hardly ever find them. And usually when you do, they're middle movements of a larger work. So it's not really the end. Or they're madrigals or motets that are talking about death or going down into the grave. That makes sense. But sometimes even if they end, it's only implied with a fifth. They don't actually have a minor note in there. So Composers seem to shy away from ending the piece in a minor mode unless it's been firmly grounded in minor all along. To paraphrase Robert Frost, something there is that doesn't love a minor third that wants it raised. On the other hand, some of the saddest pieces I know are in major mode and they end in major. Barber's adagio for strings, which is America's semi-official funeral music, moves through both major and minor, but ends decisively in major. Uh, Elgar's Enigma variation number nine, Nimrod, which is the most beloved of all the variations, is in major throughout and will will make you break down in tears almost certainly. Silver Swan by Gibbons, whose swan we leave having sung her first and last by the reedy shore in a decidedly major key. I think what's really compelling about this is that a sad song in minor can always be resolved with the Picardy third and the clouds cleared away. But if you have a sad song in major, there is no solution. It's already resolved. It's settled in its sadness. It's as it should be, and there's just there's no cure for it. So <laughs> that's, I think, a very interesting distinction we learned from the overtone series. The next is the octave and the diatonic musical scale. For ages, I thought musical scales were just an invention of people. And it turns out I was completely wrong. So i really like to show you how that came about. When Pythagoras used his monochord to identify the first few harmonics of the overtone series, it's likely he was only able to produce the first few partials audibly with what he had to work with, right, because he didn't have any electronic instruments to amplify uh, the vibrations. (coughs) And not all of the 12 half steps, which I have listed up here, that we in the Western world use to divide the octave. Fortunately, he was a scientist as well as a philosopher and used what he could see to find that which he could not. The fundamental represents the simplest interval, the unison. And if you know a little bit about the Greeks, you know to the the Greeks the unison encompassed everything. It was the symbol of everything. And together with the first partial creates the second simplest interval, the octave, sometimes called the diapason, which I'm telling you simply because I love the word diapason. (laughs) It's a great word. I love the octave. I, I have this thing about the octave. I love that when we hear this note and this note, we say, yeah, those are the same note. When they are manifestly not the same note, there's this and there's this. But when men and women sing together and they're going to sing in unison, the men don't pitch their voices really high, usually, and the women don't pitch their voices really low, they sing in an octave. And we all agree, they're all singing the same pitch. American composer Paul Cooper referred to this octave relationship as the basic miracle of music. And it's called octave equivalence. And it's a result of the fundamental and its octave having such closely related harmonics. They just kind of nestle into each other. When I'm tuning harps, if I get a really good octave, the two notes just kind of blend into each other. The octave is found in every culture in the world. We may disagree with how to divide the scale, but everyone has an octave, and everyone naturally sings in octaves. We all recognize that this note and this note are the same note. I like to think about it of sh- like shades of one color, like uh, that's an imperfect analogy, but the sky is blue, and the bird is blue, and my dress is blue, and that chair is blue, and they're all different blues, but they're blue, right? Because they are the same note, in music we give them the same name, and we're gonna use C. Just so I don't have to draw any accidentals, which takes more time. But the patterns apply no matter what note you start on. (coughs) So now we have a beginning and an end, a C and a C, but how do we divide up our octave? Different cultures have divided it different ways. Sometimes they use symbolic things, like for a while the Greeks were dividing their octave based on their perceived measurement of the planets which was interesting, you know, because as above, so below to the Greeks. You know, if we have the harmony of the spheres, then our octave should have the harmony of the spheres. Um, But they didn't end up, Pythagoras went farther. We wanted a scale, and the word scale comes from scala, meaning steps. So we don't want any big leaps in the scale, just comfortable steps, which sound good together. I can't use the octave to show me how to divide up the scale, because if I go octave to octave, I'll just get the pitch class of C. And that's a huge leap and not a very entertaining scale. But if I go to the fifth, which is really the most important interval in music and is almost the exact same, uh, the ratio of the fifth is almost the exact same as the golden golden ratio. Thank you. (laughs) If I use the fifth and I go up that way, and then I collapse everything, then I get the 12 tones of the Western chromatic scale. The first time I realized that the chromatic scale was actually present in physics and not just some scale that I had to practice over and over again to audition for district band, I couldn't get over my amazement at the beauty and the order of nature and and, and the universe. But now that we have our chromatic scale, you might think this is the best scale to base our system of tonal music on, right? It's based on the fifth, and it's got all the notes we could cram in there, and surely more notes must be better. But there's a problem with this scale, and I can diagram it for you visually. All of these notes are a half step apart. So if I go from note to note, You can see it makes a very beautiful pattern, but it's a very even pattern. In fact, we call scales like this balanced because every note is equidistant from every other note. There is no tonal center. This intervallic democracy makes for music with no center and no tendency towards resolution. The best I can do is emphasize one note in the bass, usually. And that makes it my tonal center, but I could just as easily do this one. And that becomes my tonal center. There's, it, balanced scales lack the push and pull of different intervals that give music its forward motion. That doesn't mean balanced scales aren't useful. Roger Kamian, author of Music and Appreciation, tells us the word chromatic comes from the Greek chroma, color. And the traditional function of the chromatic scale is to color or embellish the tones of the major and minor scales. Composers as far back as Bach have written passages using the chromatic scale, and another balanced scale, the octatonic scale, which consists of alternating whole and half steps. Which sounds a little like the chromatic scale, and also a little more melodic. There's a Persian version of this scale called a string of pearls, uh, talking about the alternating whole and half steps, comparing them to pearls, which I just thought was a really pretty idea. And everyone's familiar with the whole tone scale, because its evenly spaced whole tones and eternally unresolved dissonances give the listener a feeling of being in suspended reality. I mean, it's a nice scale, but we don't want to base all our music on it, right? (coughs) There is one arrangement of whole and half steps that came to be the basis of our system, and that is the diatonic scale. We find it, no surprise, in the same place we found the chromatic scale from the interval of the fifth. If we take any seven adjacent tones, so in the example of C major, from F to B, ah. (coughs) sorry, Um, we find an arrangement of whole and half steps with very special properties. In the chromatic scale, every musical interval is equally represented, with no one interval being more important than the next. Likewise, in the octatonic scale, except you have double the number of major thirds, which gives it its slightly different quality. In the whole tone scale, you have nothing but whole steps, thirds, and eternally unresolved tritones. But the arrangement of whole steps and half steps in the diatonic scale, F, C, G, D, A, E, B, and therefore, the all Western music from the Middle Ages until the late 19th century creates what we call, and I love this phrase, a unique multiplicity of interval class. All the possible intervals within the octave are present and in different proportions. We have six perfect fifths, the most important and dynamic interval in the diatonic series, but only one tritone, but we only need one because it's very, very powerful. Two half steps, but five whole steps, Four minor thirds, but three major thirds. And if you notice, everything adds up to seven, which is another one of the endless patterns to be found. It is the most hierarchical and has the most variation. So even though in the chromatic scale, every note is as equal as every other note, in the diatonic scale, the humble three is nothing compared to five or one, but you can't have the major triad without it. So every scale step has its purpose to serve. And if you don't have some of them, it wouldn't be as powerful. The gift from the harmonic series, the overtone series, is not just a major scale, however. If we start using the same pattern of whole and half steps, which in this case, we're using the white keys of the piano, but we start in a different place, it also gives us the minor scale. And if we start in a different place from that, it gives us all the church modes. Dorian, Phrygian, Lydian, and Mixolydian, my personal favorite. No, no, it's good, I love Mixolydian. So you can see that all of our major scales in Western music are a rotation through this diatonic series, and they all share the really, really unique properties of these whole and half steps. If we choose to use only five adjacent tones from the circle of fifths, we find the pentatonic scale, oops, which is not only a feature in eastern music but very ancient folk music i don't think ancient f- or i shouldn't say ancient but i don't think people who are writing folk music had the circle of fifths i just think it's a natural scale for people to sing so what is it about this magical pattern that produces so many beautiful scales there's a lovely visual to be had here concerning the golden ratio Called by many other names, including the divine proportion, examples of the golden ratio are found throughout nature in the design of the nautilus shell or the arrangements of seeds in the head of a sunflower. It is also found in beautiful architecture and the proportions used by artists such as Leonardo da Vinci and Dali. It's such a pleasing proportion, actually, that it shows up even in the design of such everyday items as books, playing cards, postcards, posters, light switch plates, and widescreen televisions. It is expressed mathematically in the Fibonacci sequence, which you may know, which is a series of numbers where each number is the sum of the two preceding it. So the Fibonacci sequence, goodbye circle of fifths, starts with zero, usually. Ah, good, and then one, and then one, and then two, and then three, and then five, and then eight, I'm running into my monochord, and then 13, and so on. And it's just found everywhere in nature where we find pleasing proportions. If we take the steps of the chromatic scale compared to the steps of the the diatonic scale, then we find that every note of the diatonic scale with the exception of the leading tone is a Fibonacci pair. So C would be one to one, and D would be two to three, And E would be 3 to 5. And F is 2 to 3, again, 4 to 6, if we break it down. And G is 5 to 8. And A is 3 to 5, if you break it down. B, 7 to 12. I know. It's so cool. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) this is where I start getting really excited about music theory. And C is 8 to 13. So you see 1 to 1, 2 to 3. 3 to 5, 2 to 3 again, 5 to 8. You see these all. Now, this is what, where it gets really, really interesting. B in a major scale is the leading tone of the major scale. It's a, called a tendency tone. When I was in college, people used to do this all the time. Someone would go, go into a practice room, and they would do this, <laughs> and then they'd leave. And then everyone would, that's what we would do. And someone would have run in. And if you don't have perfect pitch, you'd have to hunt around and find the note. Oh, thank goodness. This note, this B, this, this just so close. It's so close to the perfect number. And that's what makes you just dying to finish that. Thank goodness. <laughs> so I think it's, a, it's amazing how that lines up. Now there's another, there's another tendency tone that I want to talk about because I have to dispel a myth. This is important. A notorious tendency tone you may have heard of is the dreaded tritone. Right? We've all heard. This interval has the very ominous name of Diablos in Musica, the devil in music. You can find any number of videos on YouTube that will tell you about how, in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church banned the tritone and excommunicated anyone (laughs) who used it in music and how it's the devil's note. This reputation has led to its being used to represent the devil in many different pieces of music. In Cesson's Dance Macabre, you hear it, but also in Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze, right? It's an exciting story. It gets repeated over and over, even by quite well-educated musicians. But it's not true, of course. (laughs) If you look at music written in the Middle Ages, both sacred and secular, you certainly see this devil in music crop up here and there. So what's with the pointy horns and the forked tail on the tritone? The first mention of the devil in music comes in 1725 when Johann Joseph Fuchs wrote his seminal textbook on counterpoint, which is how we combine two or more lines of music together harmoniously. Called Gradus ad Parnassum, Steps to Parnassus, It's basically a workbook for music theory and it's used to this day. It was used by Mozart and Beethoven and Haydn and many other famous classical composers. I use it here at Oakcrest not just because it's excellent but because I think it's exciting for the girls to use the same workbook that Mozart's father made him use. It's just a wonderful connection. In Gradus, Fuchs admonishes the student to be careful of certain intervals because they are hard to sing, especially the tritone. Mi contra fa, which in the, the medieval and Renaissance hexachord system is this. He warns, es diablos in musica. The tritone, in other words, is the devil to sing. Over time, the idea sprang up that the medieval monks thought the interval would summon the devil, which they did not, (laughs) and that the church banned its use, which it did not, and that even some poor souls were excommunicated for using it, which they weren't. (laughs) It is, I'm afraid, too good a story to ever die, but I wanted you to know the truth. The tritone, which splits the octave exactly in half, is a very powerful uh, tendency tone. It is, compared to the octave, which is about as consonant as you get to split the octave in half is about as dissonant as you can get. And it sets up expectations of resolution which must be obeyed. The unresolved tritone is the interval that gives the whole tone scale its dreamy quality. But that's okay. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking dissonance in music is bad, but it's only when we have dissonances that are unresolved that people hear music as awkward and ugly. Dissonance builds tension, the resolution of which makes for very satisfying music, and arts, and literature, if you think about it. Satisfying music is every composer's goal. So you can bet medieval composers wanted to use this very interesting interval, even if it was hard to sing. So when you have that tritone, when it resolves, a lovely feeling so that brings me to the last point i wanted to talk about today one of the most remarkable things about the harmonic series is how it gives us a road map for the development of western music a road map that has been there since the beginning of time just waiting to be followed the history of western music starts in the church with single lines of chants so there's our fundamental but often sung in unison and there's our octave let's see right? The practice developed around the 11th or 12th century of singing in octaves and fifths. Probably because monks were singing in big cathedrals that were very resonant, and that interval of a fifth would just pop out in the resonance, and they would start copying it. And this is called organum, and it's the precursor to polyphony of the late medieval and Renaissance period. Polyphony is really just a line of chant wrapped with other lines of chant. It's very linear. Every part is very important. There's no melody and accompaniment. The sound of the medieval era is long, wandering melodic lines sometimes determined by text, and just an underpinning of a drone of an open fifth. In the Renaissance, we start to see the inclusion of the major and the minor third in the lines of madrigals, motets, and mass settings, but the lines are still very independent. But then in the Baroque period, the period of Corelli and Vivaldi and Bach, Western music takes a major departure, and in my opinion, this is where we see the full flowering of Western harmony begin. Up until this point, there's been great melodic variety, but not really a lot of harmonic underpinning to the music. And the harmonic beauty of Western music is really what it sets it apart from other musics of the world. Indian music has amazing hundreds of scales you have to learn and hundreds of rhythmic patterns. They don't have a lot of harmony. It's really a drone or an open octave. Lots of musics have many creative aspects to them, but none of them have the harmonic richness that Western music does. The melody, up until this point, I like to think of it as spreading like ivy, but along the ground. It goes wherever it wants to go, but it's very unrestrained. It's unfettered by structure, except the text, and sometimes not even the text. But the use of triads and seven chords, including the powerful tritone, And ever-evolving harmonic complexity began to staple the melody to the movement of harmony, just like if we trained our spreading ivy up along a strong tower. The ivy is now limited to the shape of the tower, just as melody became restrained by the harmonic progression in the music. This is actually an Anthony Trollope metaphor. Don't credit me with it. right? But I think, and he, he means it for men and women. But I think it works really well with melody and harmony. As we continue up the overtone series, and the intervals get smaller and smaller and smaller, and we go on in the period of Western music, and we get to from classical music to romanticism and then chromaticism, and then we get into the interesting, strange, fantastical innovations of the 20th century. You can see that it follows the overtone series very closely. And where does that leave us? Interestingly enough, Right where Paul Hindemith in his book The Craft of Musical Composition said it would, music, as long as it exists, will always take its departure from the major triad and return to it. The music, musician cannot escape it any more than the painter, his primary colors, or the architect, his three dimensions. So I just would like to leave you with this thought. Why is music so important to human beings? Because it's not food, and it's not shelter, and it's not water and yet every culture has music not just for entertainment, but for their most solemn occasions, for their most celebratory occasions, for their religious worship, music is everywhere, and without it, the situation is lacking. And I think my opinion is, and I always tell this to parents at back to school night, this is because man is the musical animal. Other animals, like music you can see lots of videos on youtube of people playing trombones and the cows come they're very interested and Mm -hmm. the little girl playing the violin and the elephant's very happy swinging his trunk they appreciate music but they don't make it birds sing for communication they don't craft songs and share them with each other whales sing for communication but man we make music out of everything we make music out of inanimate objects like rain on the roof if we think something is beautiful to hear we call it musical I think this is because music, in some way, is part of being created in the image and likeness of God. It's a language that we, it's a way we can share in creation, like there are other ways we can share in creation with God, and I am i don't have an imprimatur for that, but that's just how. I think of it, and um, that's why I think it's really important to study music theory, just like it's really important to study science, and really important to study logic and grammar and rhetoric, because Through that, we can gain another appreciation of the beauty of God, which is really the point of our liberal arts education. So I would like to conclude by saying that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And music theory is one way of seeing God in his creation.